Michael. Hey, Diane. So I've got to open with a correction from our last episode. Michael, I said we were underway. I know. I said we were underway with the 2021 school year. What? Wow. (laughs) I literally went back in time. The therapist couch is calling with that slip. What do you think it means? And and oh, by the way, you didn't even catch my mistake. So what does that mean? It didn't even register, I confess. So what does it mean? Why don't I let the audience tell us (laughs) by dropping us an email or a tweet, or maybe that's too dangerous for our public uh, personas. But I think it ties Diane into why we started the podcast, which, you know, obviously we've all undergone a lot of disruption and dislocation and maybe out-of-body experiences where we don't know what time of day it is, let alone what year it is. Uh, And class is still very much disrupted as we go into this third pandemic school year, if you will. And, you know, I think it is hard for many people to remember that when this all began in March 2020, people thought we'd be closing schools for like two weeks or something, and then we'd be back. And then, you know, obviously, ironically enough, the two weeks are really coming into play this year with thousands of students and educators, literally tens of thousands, quarantining for two weeks. And way back then, as people will recall, we hoped to do just a limited series podcast uh, to connect the questions that we were hearing from parents all across the country to meaningful opportunities, in our opinion, that we were seeing for real change, real reinvention Mm -hmm. of our schools. And while we are not there yet, there are pockets out there, which I think leave me more optimistic in some ways. And so obviously, in this third season, we get to go deeper on many of these topics that we've picked up and, and, you know, really from a place of curiosity. And we framed Mm -hmm. it around the the classic set of questions, right? The who, what, where, when, why, how. And last week, we we dove into the what, right? The last episode, the what, the what do we teach, the curriculum. And uh, we're going to do it differently today, right, Diane? We are. And um, one of the things that we committed to and were asking for at the end of last season was nuance, Michael. And so I think today is going to be a fun day on that front because we're going to jump in today on the who, Who actually gets to decide what kids learn in school? And this came up naturally from our conversation last week around what. And so we're just going to follow that curiosity, as you said. It doesn't take a lot of curiosity right now to know that we are, people are really politically polarized, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to state the obvious. Uh, We've seen this with masks and vaccines, um, but that polarization is carrying over into many aspects of our lives, including education, maybe education sort of front and center and embodying a lot of that right now. Um, one of the places we see it showing up is in debates about what kids should be learning. And, and that leads to a real struggle to who gets to decide. Um, and this certainly leads to some headline grabbing behavior. You know, historically, we've seen plenty of protests and book burnings when people really were questioning what was in school libraries or the novels that and reading passages kids were being asked to read. We're still seeing that. I saw a story about that over the weekend. But there are also some famous fights over what is taught in science and certainly around human sexuality. And then, well, there's always history too. And so, but recently we've seen reports of parents demanding that their children be able to film their classes so parents can monitor what teachers are teaching. And in these particular cases, it seems to ensure that teachers aren't veering into 
quote, critical race theory territory. I must say, Michael, I don't think that's what you and I envisioned when we were thinking about technology being a meaningful part of school redesign. (laughs) (laughs) And quite frankly, if you're paying attention on the other end of the spectrum, there's a whole bunch of kids who've turned to TikTok to learn what they say their schools aren't teaching them. On that one, that might be (laughs) starting to verge into the area of how we would imagine technology sort of disrupting learning. So that's another conversation. Um, But today, we really want to dig in and tease tease apart the who gets to decide. And and we want to push back past that clickbait headline, you know, reality, and and really dig into the nuances of, of who's deciding what kids are taught in schools. And I'll add, Diane, it's incredibly topical. I got an email literally over the weekend from a teacher who's very well informed asking me a variation of this very question around who really gets to decide these curricular questions and how can they influence them uh, and how should they write about uh, and, and to whom should they write about these questions. Mm. So very topical. I think to figure out who really gets to decide, it probably helps to to lay out our possible suspects, if you will, Diane. So I've, I've got a list of folks here that we've generated, and it starts with, of course, the very top, if you will, uh, the federal government. And, you know, not just the White House, if you will, but more specifically, the Department of Education. And when people think Department of Education, they often think the political appointees at the Department of Education, not the career bureaucrats, if you will, people like Secretary DeVos or Secretary Cardona, or even back into the Obama years where this really uh, started to flare up with Secretary Duncan. And then uh, they think about state government as the next tier. Boards of education, state superintendents, you have that infrastructure. What role does the governor play in terms of appointing things of that nature? Then that next level that I think a lot of people think about are the school districts themselves, yep. specifically the boards of education, superintendents. When you get into chartered systems like your own, people that are leading those systems, and there's a lot of thought around that. And I obviously, think those are, yeah, those are the real usual suspects, right? Those seem like I the official right. government agencies. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because they all play into different ones, right? Secretary mm-hmm. of Education connects to the president. When you think about the state level, connects into the governor. Some municipalities, it connects into the mayor. Sometimes it doesn't at all. They're independently right. elected. So that gets into that next layer of group, if you will. The school principals, yeah. the parents, the teachers, the students themselves, yep. You know these actors that are in the day-to-day almost or more of schooling itself, Diane. Yeah. And then... I think there's that last group that maybe we don't talk all that much about, but sometimes this is where the conspiracy theories fly, uh, for sure, and sometimes there's some truth to them, which is influential committees, more often historical, right, in terms of their impact on schooling. So this is everything from the Committee of Ten, and for folks who aren't familiar, this is a committee that now... Over a hundred years ago, uh, when I started out in this field, it was not over a hundred years ago, but now over a hundred years ago, uh, a group led by one of the former Harvard presidents and others who thought about the curriculum that should be in high schools specifically. Uh, there's the National Commission on Excellence in Education, and that helped produce the Nation at Risk report in 1983 that led to a lot of the uh, rethinking of uh, what are our schools actually doing in terms of outcomes. There's a whole group of folks that came together to bring us Common Core, which obviously got a lot of headlines in political campaigns. 
And then there's employers who connect into all of this. There's colleges and universities that connect into all of this. There's the textbook companies themselves that have a de facto influence over curriculum in many cases. So there are a lot of groups, Diane. Wow, that's going to be a long email back to that uh, teacher, Michael. Let's (laughs) see if we can organize it a bit. Um, I'm going to propose that we break this long list of people down into three groups. Love it. Um, And the way that I think about it is... The first group is, I mean, let's let's just take some people off the table. Who does not actually get to decide? Of all those people we just named, you know, who has the least amount of decision making power? Who who's who's not getting to make a, a, a choice here? The second bucket I would say is, and and we'll come back to that in just a moment. I think it'd be fun to start there. Who does has have literally direct decision making power? Who officially has this power? And then third, this really interesting group, I think the most interesting group to talk about is who doesn't have technical decision-making power, but in reality might have the most power mm. at all, of, uh, of all. And so I, I say we leave that one for last and, and start off with who doesn't get to decide. I like the categories, Diane. I'm curious who you got in that first group. All right. Well, here's who I've put in the first group, Michael. One, school principals. Having been a school principal, spending a lot of time with them, I can explain why, but they're in that group. Two, parents. And that's probably not going to feel very good, but I, I honestly think that's pretty real. Three, students. Again, not feeling good, but um, I think that's real. And then four, I'm going to put employers here. And I, I do think there's been a historical shift here, but I just don't think in our current age that employers have really any decision-making power about what's being learned in our K-12 system. So, so that's my list. Yeah. So I largely, I largely agree with that. I'm, I'm trying to look for places to poke, I guess, uh, just to prod our thinking a little bit more. The, the two places I might are employers. I think you just alluded to it that maybe some 20, 25 years ago, they had a little bit more power in this, like a coalition of businesses really helped to bring around No Child Left Behind and a lot of the 1990s education governors and some of those movements. And so it's still limited, but it might have gone into that third group. Uh, what's interesting is who's missing from your list, teachers. I'm curious to see which bucket they fall into. So we'll get yeah. them there in a moment. Uh, and then the only other thing I would say is Parents are an interesting one because I agree with you. The one place where I think parents do exert some control is where they have some element of, of choice in where their mm. child goes to school. And they can occasionally pick a school, I don't want to say radically different, but if they have private options, they're able to pick, say, a school with a classical curriculum or something like that, as opposed to maybe a more of a state-based mandated one. Yeah, I think this is such an important point though, Michael, because what you're saying is in order for parents to have really meaningful say in what their kids are learning, they literally have to pick a whole school option. Yeah, they have to opt out. That And that's a giant decision, as we know. And so that's one of the reasons I put them in this bucket. The other reason is people believe that parents have say over that because they elect their local school officials. But I think when we get through this entire list, we're going to see pretty quickly that that diffused theoretical power is not not very real. And then, and then finally, you know, the really the only then other power that parents and students have is just to sort of, again, opt out, whether it be on an individual book, like my child's not going to read that book, 
or you know, or kids decide every day, all day, what they're going to do or not do. And so, but th- this is not productive power, I don't think. <laughs> you yeah, know? I to- I totally agree. I think something interesting you just raised uh, before we jump to the next category, which is that parents, and not just parents, but voters more generally, right, in a democracy, at some level, they have some de facto level of power, but it is so diffused through the different layers of government. And frankly, when uh, school board uh, elections occur and off cycles often, or who appoints them, and there's 20 other issues, one of which you probably care about more. And so, you know, like it gets dissipated by the time we think about curriculum, if we're thinking at the state board level, and I'm trying not to allude too much to what might be in your second bucket. So it's interesting, like at some level, yes, they absolutely have authority. And and if you cross the line, like critical race theory has for some parents, you certainly hear about it a lot, right? right. Not with any level of nuance, but but you certainly hear about it. So it's not that they don't exert any control, but I think you're right. Like in terms of a practical day-to-day what is taught, pretty little control. The The other interesting thing on that line is, I bet a lot of people would say, well, school principals surely have a lot of control. Like, they're the instructional right. leader. And that's not generally uh, the, the case. I mean, I think it might right. be at the margins again. They might pick a school-wide social-emotional learning curriculum, for example, that is going to be the theme uh, of what a school explores across the classes. As we talked about last week, that might not be the best way to incorporate those skills uh, no. in, in, into learning. But that's about it. And I, I would add to that what we're going to see in the next two buckets is how the principles really get squeezed from all different directions. And it really does dramatically drop any sort of decision making power that they have on this front. Uh, and that's why I put them in this bucket. Um, again, having been one and probably one that had a lot more influence at least I, I both in traditional system where I felt like I had no control whatsoever as a principal and then in a charter system where I su- had significantly more and it's still very minimal given all the, the other players. The, the last thing I would just offer as evidence, I think, on the parent and student front, Michael, is um, as you know, over the last couple of years, we've just done a lot of work across the country um, engaging with families and parents about what they want and what they need. Um, and over and over and over again, parents are telling us, and quite frankly, employers and parents are very aligned on this, students as well, is the things that they want from school are real, what we call the habits of success skills. They want their kids to learn things that are meaningful and that will enable them to engage in meaningful work and good employment. And they're not feeling like that's what they're getting uh, at school. And so there is a real gap between what is being taught and what parents, students and employers are saying they want. That's interesting. Would you say that they maybe have more of a veto on the hot button issues, but less of an ability to put something in the curriculum, or frankly, touch 90% of what's being taught and learned? I think that's exactly right. They might be able to stop a single book or a particular text or something like that. But in terms of, like you said, constructively advising and adding to and or or transforming, I don't think we see much of that at all. All right. Well, then let's segue into your second around who has direct decision-making power. So to me, the two big folks in this bucket are state governments and school boards. And, you know, right off the top, people might be wondering, what? 
you know, the feds aren't in there. And I did debate on that one. So we could talk about that. But for, in my view, the two agencies that really have the most control here are, are primarily the state governments. They're really mm-hmm. setting um, the policies that govern schools in a state and have significant control over that. And then local school boards have control over, you know, within those boundaries, the curriculum they're adopting, specific local standards, things like that. So th- those are the two that I've got there. What do you think about that? I, I think they both make a lot of sense. I mean, particularly the state government apparatus, if you will, the school, you know, the state board of education, uh, the superintendent or whatever the structure is. And each state has a slightly different structure generally on this. Some states have a dual structure of an appointed uh, and elected. I mean, there's all sorts of you know, different variations uh, on what that looks like. But essentially, I think that's right. The state government is really where the standards get set and the standards drive the curriculum. Uh, So, you know, in terms of direct decision-making power, that makes sense. There's a bunch of things that are not enumerated and that's where the school boards, if you will, probably come in. But I would put them as secondary to the state government the superintendent, obviously, state, you know, not just the state superintendent, but the local superintendent probably fits a little bit into that school board mm-hmm. uh, conversation at the local level. But again, I think it's really, this is really a state driven thing at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that um, is right, Michael. And what's interesting, we could take the Common Core as like a little mini case mm-hmm. study here of what we've been talking about in that, you know, again, I don't want to oversimplify here, but in essence, a whole bunch of state superintendents, like almost all of them, and a variety of other people worked for several years to really come to agreement on kind of universal standards. And they did that because the states have so much power over this, and they really get to decide. So they had to collaborate. They did that really, I think, at least one of their intentions was quite good, which is a student in California should be learning like a lot of the same things as in Mississippi. So Mississippi or Alabama or Florida so that kids can move across the country and there aren't dramatically different standards and expectations and equity and all of that. What happens, though, is when all the states then go and adopt the Common Core and they get pushback from some of the groups we just talked about up front, that uh, collaboration starts to crumble. And then you start seeing states going in all their own directions, which now has us not having any commonality because the states really have the power, I think, around Yeah, I think that's right. And that's where I think states have that direct decision making power. And that's also what I had in mind with parents having a little bit of that veto, if you will. Yeah, I I think they have less veto than some people think that they do, because a lot of states, they just rebranded the standards and said, we're no longer doing Common Core. And maybe there's 10%, you know, variation and so forth from what it was before. But so there's a bit of a veto there. It's certainly not direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it puts them in that uh, that category that we put uh, above. But the state government is unquestionably where this is happening for people that follow this. The, chief, the Council of Chief State School Officers, CCSSO, is the body that really was coordinating a lot of this activity and, and a lot of this multi-year effort before it even became a flashpoint in the federal conversation and the nationwide conversation, which I suspect is where we'll go uh, in a moment. I think 
that's I think that's right. So we actually have a relatively small number of bodies that have really direct decision making power, which I think makes this next category the most interesting one of all. Because while very small number there, there's a lot of stakeholders in this next group. And I think they end up really having significant influence over what happens. And so here's who I've put into the category of they don't have technical decision-making power, but in reality, they might have the most power. Hmm. And I put them in order. Oh. An interesting order. So I certainly believe the feds are here, and we can come back to this, but I think the the accountability and testing system is really where they exert their, their real power here. They have found a way to really put significant pressure on states. Colleges and universities, and I think this is a very long-standing influential power, um, given the history of sort of how the, you know, the role of higher ed and the interaction with K-12 and what K-12 is doing. Textbook companies, and I think these folks have extraordinary power, and we can get into why and how. We talked about it on our second episode, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, Class Disrupted. Yeah. Influential committees, and you gave us a few right at the top, and we started talking about them, but they are fascinating to me from a historical perspective, how, how not certainly not all committees, but there's a few that have really stuck and had real power. And then teachers, and I'd like to wrap with teachers, because I think they fit in here they are, Michael, Perfect. in this category. Yeah, no, I, 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 so I like this group. Uh, the feds are the one that I think I have the biggest question mark when I hear mm-hmm. this, and you have them at the top. And I guess the way I think about it is where they've had power is what I think you were alluding to through the accountability system, privileging English language arts and math in particular above almost everything else, right? Like, you know, even whole debate uh, 10, 15 years ago around teacher evaluation systems and bonuses. And they were all pegged to these two very narrow subjects, narrowly thought of. Uh, and that's where I think the feds have sort of calcified maybe yes. uh, some some of the system. But I don't know that on a, like on a day-to-day basis, I'm not sure that they have that imp- much of an impact on the actual standards in use in states is sort of my impression. And I, the case study I'll use on that, and I'd love to hear your pushback, is, is Common Core, actually, where they really, in my mind, Secretary Duncan, actually, to go back to that during the Obama years, by putting so much money in the testing and adoption of Common Core standards, really led to the revolt <laughs> of a lot of states and parents against Common Core, who, who frankly didn't really know what was in it, but they didn't like it because the federal government was somehow touching it more directly. And as a result, it didn't shuttle it, as we talked about earlier, but it did alter and the contours of it significantly. And so I, to me, it shows the federal government, I, I think, has far less power than most people popularly assume. And I, so I don't know that I would put them in that first bucket, but they, they, they almost feel like a unique case to me yeah. among all these others there. I'm curious your take. No, I think that that's interesting. Um, and he, here's what I think you just said that really fascinates me, which is I think they have less power than people assume. I truly believe the vast majority of people in the country think that the federal government decides what kids mm. learn in school. And we both know that that's not technically accurate. I do think that 
for the the relatively small percentage of dollars that the federal government invests in education and for a government that really does believe in the state's rights and that says this should be a statewide decision, I think they've gotten very creative and really found a way to have a lot, exert a lot of control over what's actually happening in schools on a day-to-day basis. And what I, I can tell you is that the as much as state standards influence how teachers are thinking and what we're doing in schools every day, the accountability and the assessment system, which is at a federal level and then used by the state level, becomes in all sorts of bizarre ways dominant yeah. um, actor in our day to day work in schools. And so, to your point, key key things it does it really narrows the curriculum: math, reading, you know, language arts a little bit of maybe science here and there in particular grade levels. And there's all this engineering that goes around that assessment. It's driving so much, um, so many of the behaviors. And then states took this system and they use it for all sorts of things. And so it really becomes this, um, this infrastructure that in my view really um, limits our ability to rethink and redesign because everything comes back to, to, to this accountability. Yeah, it's interesting. And that actually might be a good segue into the other on this categories, because to me, colleges and universities, similarly, like they're not in the day to day standards. But I think even more so than the federal government, uh, they have laid the infrastructure by which the Committee of Ten, we talked about them earlier, essentially imposed what are the subjects that we teach, particularly in high school, and what are the ways we divide them up? And we talked about this last time where I sort of said, maybe we have like the broad headlines, right? But the mix of them and the uh, atomization of them or or the, the modularity we've created, that's where I think we go wrong. And we've gone wrong because high school and then middle school as a result of that has largely mirrored the college and university departmental structure that was in place. And, you know, the reason we have biology, chemistry, physics in that order traces to the committee of 10. And it comes out of that departmental structure at the university level. And and I will say a, a big reason that I've gotten involved so much in higher education over the last five, seven years uh, has been because at, the more I played in the K-12 world and the more frustrated I got was because my belief became ultimately K-12 was more of a dependent system on the higher ed system rather than an interdependent one, meaning if we wanted to make K-12 better, you actually have to improve college and make it focus on the things that are meaningful and matter for people's future lives. And I don't think the college and university university system does that for most individuals today. I couldn't agree more. And, and my sort of day-to-day experience, Michael, is certainly in high school and middle schools, and I think it ends up going all the way back into elementary schools. That. What the expectations and standards set by colleges and universities about what they what is needed in order to be accepted into them drives what is taught, who it's taught to, uh, everything that is happening in high schools and middle schools. And what's interesting about this is the majority of kids are not necessarily even going into these uh, selective, I would say it's the selective schools that are really yes. driving this, quite frankly. So we're talking maybe 50, maybe 100, if you're being generous, schools are really driving this for all K-12 systems in the country for a very relatively small percentage of students, which 
I think is blocking us from being creative and thoughtful about all the other options, what could be possible. And we, we have some real fears about those things because we don't want to just track kids into, you know, pathways and lanes that they don't want to be in and that aren't good for them. But it really is limiting. I think um, they have a huge influence. And what's fascinating to me is this has been going on for a 100 years. It literally is the same. I mean, the Committee of Ten was a 100 years ago. And it's still so profound in what we're doing right now. Um, and the same arguments have been happening for a 100 years. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. And the only thing I'll add is that those 100 schools, if you will, or, or whatever the number is, they don't just exert that power over the K-12 system. They exert that power over all the higher ed system too, yeah. which is why it's so calcified. You know, most of the higher ed system, because their faculty members are trained in research and they want to get tenure and promotion and ideally teach and be able to research with the budgets that you get at those selective schools, they need to mirror that structure so that they're recognizable in that mm-hmm. system, which calcifies everything and has this ripple effect. So I, I, I think that's right. And, and, and then maybe that flows us into the textbook uh, yes. companies next, which from my perspective, I, I think they're absolutely correct here. You know, we had Larry Berger on, as we alluded to, the second episode of, dis- of Class Disrupted in the first year. And he talked about how does a textbook get adopted. And one of the points he's made is is that a lot of those textbooks aren't all that meaningfully different from those 50 years ago. And so in a de facto way, you know, we, we change the standards or we ask for different things. There's a little shuffling of a few pages here, an addition of a few things here, a CD-ROM added, a website, but the fundamental spine, if you will, the fundamental architecture, infrastructure of the text hasn't actually evolved all that much. Very rarely do they rip stuff out and rethink it from scratch. I think um, you're, this is why I put parents up in the top bucket, Michael, because let's just go back to Common Core for a moment. Between textbooks not changing and being aligned to Common Core, even after people wanted to abandon it, and between, and the assessments that exist for this national accountability system, which are aligned to Common Core, People may think that they got rid of Common Core. They did not get rid of Common Core. It just sort of pushed it into the shadows, if you will. And so, and let me be clear, I actually believe in the Common Core standard, so I'm not advocating for that. But I just think the decision-making um, structure there is really apparent that uh, of who, who has the real power. Yeah, no, I agree. So I, I, I think we've touched on influential committees. I don't know if there's yeah. anything else you'd say there, but... The teachers is the last one where I think what you have in mind is like they shut the door and they teach what they teach and we don't always know. And sometimes they give significant effort to a particular standard or unit or part of the curriculum because it's their passion area. And sometimes they don't and sort of on their own accord, if you will. There's not a lot of uh, transparency in many cases around that. I'm guessing that's what you had in mind, but I'm curious. Um, you're you're absolutely on the right track there, Michael. And I think this is important to, to talk about because while, like I said, some of these headlines and some of what's going on is deeply disturbing for sure. I think the day-to-day experience of the vast majority of teachers in this country is that they have extraordinary discretion over what is taught to their students every single day in their classroom. In very few cases do you have teachers who are really um, bound by particular, whether it be curriculum or standards or things like that. And 
part of the reason is to your point there there is this this sort of common notion that a teacher sort of goes in their room and shuts the door and no it's a black box mm-hmm. no one really sees into it it's it's one of the things we've talked extensively about this is where good technology used well actually helps to illuminate what is happening in classrooms it it would enable us to build curriculum and build learning experiences that could be iterated upon and um, collaboratively built so that our kids could be having much more powerful experiences. And I say that with all due respect for teachers having, you know, been one for a long time. It's impossible. I don't care how good you are to create day to day in and out amazing learning experiences by yourself. And even if you can do that, to then connect them to the year before and the year after and the whole learning trajectory. And so this really does need to be a collaborative experience. And I think the only way we get there is really redesigning and leveraging technology. But the, one of the things we have to get over is this is a place where teachers really hold on to their autonomy and they don't want to go here because they, they do like that control that they have in their classroom and, and, for for potentially very good reason. Sure. But it, but it is one of the blockers that we have. No, and it's why I'm a huge proponent of more co-teaching and collaborative teaching models for a lot of the reasons you said, because I think it could take away some of that emotional reaction mm-hmm. uh, and open us up to some of the uh, awesome collaborations that you just alluded to, which maybe we can get into in a uh, future episode of this, because I'd love to go deeper on it. But I think let's wrap here and and just, you know, as, as we conclude, as we always do, what's something you're watching or reading right now, Diane? Um, well, I think you might like these two, Michael. Oh. Um, my husband and I have been looking for positive, optimistic, uplifting things because it gets a little bit hard each day. And so we we bumped into a couple of musicals that are now available on television. That's the thing people are doing. And so we've watched um, In the Heights. Mm-hmm. Um, and come from away. Oh, that's Both a great of them, one. I saw it live. Yeah, yeah. Incredible, um, productions, um, that were so joyful and, and, um, so much fun and really important and powerful messages. So, um, yeah, those deeply are, meaningful. Yeah. I've got a whimsical one, maybe even more whimsical than yours, uh, which is, uh, my wife and I used to, uh, when we were first dating, and I was traveling all over. They used to have episodes of Chuck, uh, which if people remember, is this NBC show uh, about a guy who had gotten thrown out of Stanford and gotten like a computer put in his brain and was a CIA agent and a huge dork, but like on these thrilling missions, basically. (laughs) Half comedy, half like sort of spy thriller, half just very whimsical and ridiculous. Uh, We've been re-watching all of the episodes and we're totally addicted every evening. And I think it's the same thing. Like we just want a release uh, at the end of the day right now. And this is a one that harkens back to a different era on multiple (laughs) levels for us. So... Uh, we'll, well leave that, that there. Says something. And, yeah, and people can conclude whatever they want out of that. But until then, thank you for joining us on Class Disrupted. Mm-hmm.